Good afternoon. This is a presentation entitled Tuberculosis, a Global Perspective. That's a huge undertaking for essentially 40 minutes. So we will try to cover a lot of things, but I want to assure you that we may not cover everything you're interested in. I hope that we will, however. My name is Clyda Powell, and um, I currently work for the U.S. government. I work as medical officer in the U.S. Agency for International Development based out of Washington. And I work in the Infectious Disease Division. And um, I also am an associate professor of pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. My clinical training is in child neurology and uh, preventive medicine public health. Just um, since this is a uh, missions health conference, you might be interested to know that I served as a medical missionary in Cambodia for a few years. But I really got my passion for public health and all things TB in the, in the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo with Dr. Dan Fountain, who is honored us uh, to be here at this session, but also at this conference, and I hope you will have a chance to meet him because he's my mentor in public health and my inspiration as well. I also uh, am a member of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations and have served on the Board of Trustees for eight years. I just rotated off and also for many years served on the Continuing Medical Education, Dental Education Commission. So. I'm very supportive of educational purposes and quite thankful to the Southeast Christian Church for the opportunity to speak here today. The overview for the next 40 minutes is essentially this. We'll touch on the burden of TB disease as well as the progress towards global goals and targets. We'll talk about progress towards implementing TB care and control. And if there's time, we'll even talk about TB in women and children. Um, but I also want the emphasis as we go through this session for you to think, what is my role in TB control and prevention? Um, what has been my role or what could be my role? Because I think the whole purpose here is really to challenge you to new and broader thinking. This particular session is one of two. I'll be doing another session on Saturday morning. This particular session takes a more global public health perspective. I was asked to talk about global perspectives on TB, so it's not a medically focused kind of talk, although we can certainly talk about that offline if you have specific questions. The other thing is you are probably one of the first within this hemisphere to be hearing about the latest results from the World Health Organization, and we'll, uh, I'll share some data with you about that. You are welcome to ask some points of clarification uh, as we go through the presentation. Um, but in all fairness, I have questions for you. So we'll kind of make it a game, some give and take in that. Now, as we start to talk about the burden of disease and the progress towards the 2015 targets, I have to remind you that TB has been around since 5000 BC. It's been found in Egyptian mummies, in 
Peruvian mummies, and it's even recorded in the Bible by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, where he refers to the fiery consumption. So we know that even the Israelites suffered from this disease, and unfortunately, people in our world also suffer from tuberculosis. Now, let's start off this game here. Here's my question to you. How many people in the world are infected with TB? Is it A, 28 million, B, 100 million, C, 2 billion, or D, 4 billion? I hear some C's and D's. Well, let's see what the answer is. It's C, 2 billion people. It's about a third of the world is infected with TB. And we'll talk a little bit about what infected means in terms of of this um, infectious disease. Let's talk about some basics here. First of all, one-third of the world is infected with tuberculosis. And these cases are the reservoir for active cases. So what is infected? It means that you've been exposed and somehow that the the bacilli have uh, registered their address in your body, so to speak. And that's known by the fact that you'll have a positive skin test. You would have a negative chest X-ray. That just makes you infected with a positive skin test but not active disease. However, if you are symptomatic and you have a chest X-ray that indicates that something is going on within your lungs, that then becomes an active case. So that's important to make that distinction. And treatment of those active TB cases is critical to preventing new cases of TB. That is really the cornerstone to any sort of work that's done in TB control and prevention, identifying those active cases and treating them. The World Health Organization, also known as WHO, years ago had established a strategy called DOTS, D-O-T-S, which stands for Directly Observed Treatment Short Course. And essentially, the principle is that because taking TB medicines and staying on care and treatment for many months is not an easy thing to do, it is helpful if there is directly observed treatment, although it it is more than just watching somebody take their pills. Another one-third for you to keep in mind is that one-third of people with HIV will develop TB. So these two diseases are linked biologically, geologically, um, and in many other respects. And so TB is a huge part of HIV-AIDS care, and TB is the number one killer of people who have HIV-AIDS. And prevention of HIV is crucial to control TB. There are immunosuppressive reasons for that, but that's the basis. So if you're interested in working in TB or HIV, you've got to know both languages. You can't just be a monoglot. You've got to know both, so keep that in mind. Now, if we are to look at the global perspective on TB, every country has reported some TB, but the World Health Organization has designated 22 countries around the world as being high-burden countries, meaning in terms of absolute numbers of cases, they rank on that list from 1 to 22. And those 22 countries out of the more than 200 countries around the world represent 80% of the global TB burden. So there are a lot of places where you can work in TB, frankly. Now, there are a little less than 9 million new TB cases each year. In fact, the actual latest figure from the World Health Organization is 8.8, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, why that is good news in a sense. 
and about 1.4 million deaths. As you can see in this map, there are a number of countries in Africa um, and Asia and even in the Latin America Caribbean that are considered high burden countries. All right, let's keep you thinking here. How many people in the world currently have active TB? If we were to count the number of new cases and existing cases, how many do you think there would be? A, 3 million, B, 5 million, C, 9 million, or D, 26 million? This is active cases, not infected, which is the 2 billion I talked about. Any guesses out there? You're right. Very good. Now, because there are so many cases of TB, both new cases and existing cases, and that's not just TB of the lungs. TB actually is no respecter of the organs of, of the body. You'll find TB in the brain, in the lungs, in the ovaries, in the skin, in the bones, etc. But because of this burden and because TB has been around for such a long time, the World Health Organization and the Stop TB Partnership have put together a global plan to stop TB. Um, they hope to achieve the Millennium Development Goals, that's what MDG stands for, by halting and reversing the incidence of TB by 2015. And we'll see some data that support that there is progress towards that. To save 14 million lives, treat 50 million people for TB, put 800,000 people on MDR-TB treatment, and also put TB patients who have um, co-infected with HIV, there's a typo there, on ARVs. Also to produce a new drug, a new vaccine, and we'll look at some of the history um, of that later on. And also to provide a more rapid way, an easier way of diagnosing TB at the point of care. Also, as part of this uh, strategic plan to stop TB, there are six basic elements that are part of the program. And I put them up here mainly to show you you've got a menu of things that you could be engaged in within TB control and prevention. One would be high-quality dots expansion and enhancement. Another would be to work in uh, co-infection with HIV or multidrug-resistant TB or perhaps you want to take a broader approach and contribute to strengthening health systems, or you want to get down at the provider, professional, caregiver level and engage in, uh, you know, the point of care at that point. Or maybe you want to work in communities, empowering people who have TB or helping educate communities about TB, because TB is not a disease of just one person. When one person has TB, everybody else is at risk of getting TB. And so it really has to be thought of at a community level. And then lastly, maybe you're just really a researcher at heart. Maybe you would love to get down and study the TB genome, or you would like to help develop a new diagnostic or a new vaccine. That might be the area for you. So although this is an official list of the global Stop TB strategy, strategy areas, they actually could apply to you. Now, we are not going to talk very much about specific countries, although I know some of you have specific country and experience and would love to know kind of where does my country or my country of interest or my people group uh, register on the TV radar screen. This is where you can go. The global TV control report comes out annually by the World Health Organization, and I've provided you the web address here, www.who.int 
slash forward slash TB forward slash data. And these, these data really are recent. They've been released just within the last month. Let's talk a little bit about some of the, you know, where is TB? Well, TB is all around the world, but if you look at where uh, it seems to reside more, it seems to reside more in Southeast Asia and Africa. Now, this particular pie chart has the world divided up the way the World Health Organization sees it. So, for example, in Southeast Asia, there is India and Bangladesh, but Cambodia is in the Western Pacific, according to WHO. And then Pakistan and Afghanistan are in the Eastern Mediterranean region. So you have to look at these two pie charts, this one and the next, keeping that in mind. And there are political reasons for that, like they didn't want to put India and Pakistan into the same WHO regional office, things like that. But anyway, once you have that understanding, you can appreciate still the data. The take-home message from this slide is that about one-fourth of all the TB cases in the world are in India. And then if you add China into that, um, that makes about a third. So one-third of the whole world finds its TB in two countries, India and China. And then Africa, with its many countries, represents about a quarter of that burden. If you were to look at the TB deaths, you would see a somewhat similar pattern. Again, um, almost half of the cases coming out of Southeast Asia um, and about a quarter of them out of Africa. Now, one of the challenges in the TV world is deciding, you know, well, how much TV do we really have? And the only way to truly know this is to do a prevalence survey. And there has been a major global momentum to have countries look at the specifics of how much TV do they have. This is not an easy thing to do. This takes a few million dollars. It takes many people trained and organized. It can take, um, the, pro the process can go over the space of a few years. But it does help us understand who really has um, the high burden in, in the world. Now, over the last 20 years, uh, in fact, more, uh, we have been tracking the TB cases and deaths around the world. And what you can see from the slide on your left, that green line, is shows perhaps a plateau and maybe even a decline in the number of new cases. Now, I think... Given that this disease has been around for so long, one has to rejoice over small things. And so the fact that we are seeing a plateau in the new cases, that's what incidence is, and perhaps even a little bit of a decline is good news. And if you look at deaths, because these are two key things that are tracked, you can see that the mortality rates are also dropping. The purple line on the top is HIV-positive mortality, so you can see how it began to peak. It uh, was on a steady climb from the 1990s, peaking in the, in the 2000s, early 2000s, and now has gone down. So that is, in fact, good news. If we are to look at rates, meaning how many cases per 100,000, again, you can see that that decline in the number of new cases and an even greater decline in the number of existing cases so that people are being cured or treat, uh, completing their treatment. And again, the overall decline in mortality is certainly encouraging that we are saving lives through our work in TB control and prevention. Only 
one country will I specifically mention here, and that is China, which has shown dramatic reductions in TB cases and deaths over the last 20 years. And given that it represents such a high burden, with India being the top burden and China being the second uh, high burden country, um, this progress in China is remarkable. I wish we could spend a whole session just talking about what they've done and how they've done it. Now let's move to some aspects of progress in implementing TB and control. There are two key measures that are often spoken about, case detection rate and treatment success, or CDR and TSR. I think if you read anything about TB, this is what um, you'll see at some point uh, about a country performance. And if we were to look again, the global perspective that we've been asked to look at for this session, you'll see that um, what they estimate is the green bar, and what we've actually notified around the world is that dark black line. So you see there's room to go. The World Health Organization thinks that we've got a lot more TB out there that we're not detecting. So perhaps we are detecting somewhere around 65% of all the cases, meaning that about 35% of those TB cases are out there, transmitting new bacilli to susceptible people and not getting placed on treatment. It's not rocket science, but it's a huge public health problem. If we look at treatment success, we'll see that there has been steady progress. You'll see on the graph on the left that um, treatment, has, uh, treatment success is approaching the WHO targets of 90% meaning those cases that are identified under the DOTS um, strategy are successfully treated. They, are, they have gone through their many months of treatment and many drugs. If you were to break it down regionally, what you'll see is that there has been some progress in some of the regions, but actually places like Europe have had increasing problems keeping people on their treatment, and for a variety of reasons, which we won't um, discuss here, but it's helpful to note that not everything is an upward trend. Multidrug-resistant TB uh, is another challenge, and why is it a challenge? It's because it requires a longer treatment, it's expensive, and um, the side effects are more of a problem, and... Um, it's just harder, it's just a harder disease to treat. Unfortunately, what we're seeing here in this map is, again, a number of countries where there is, there's more than one drug that is resistant within the TB regimen of basically four to five drugs. You'll see that Russia, China, a number of places within Africa, Europe, a lot of Latin America, Caribbean, um, have multi-drug resistance. Now, the good news is that more and more countries are reporting, they're willing to report that they have multidrug resistance, um, but not many of those cases are actually getting on treatment. And, in fact, the most recent data show that only one in six cases of MDRTB is diagnosed and treated. And what we know is that there are about 50,000 cases that are on treatment, but the World Health Organization thinks that there are um, at least 300 cases and 300,000 cases of multidrug resistant, and some estimates lead upward to 680,000. So we have a long way to go. 
If you want to work in multidrug-resistant TB, that would be an area uh, replete with challenges. Unfortunately, there's also something called extensively drug-resistant TB. So there's resistance to the standard isoniazid and rifampicin, and then the second-line drugs that we usually use for uh, MDR also manifest, uh, the bacilli manifest resistance. So it's extensively drug-resistant. It's like it's an MDR-TB on steroids, so to speak. And as you can see from this map, there are a number of countries around the world that have confirmed it. Now, this doesn't mean that there are 50-some or 80-some countries that have it, because sometimes it's not possible to know that you have it in your country. And why would that be? Well, maybe you don't have a national TB reference laboratory. Maybe you haven't trained laboratory technicians. Maybe you can't do culture of the mycobacteria, you can't do drug sensitivity testing, or it may not be politically correct to admit that you have extensively drug-resistant TB for a variety of reasons. Now, when XDR is combined with HIV, it's deadly. And when the first reports came out a few years ago, people were dying within weeks of their diagnosis of XDR um, and also co-infected with HIV. And that segues to the fact that I hope most of you know that HIV is an important driver of the TB epidemic. It fuels it. Um, these two diseases work hand in hand. And what we saw uh, in the mid-90s and into the early 2000s were huge numbers, increases in TB cases because there was also co-infection with HIV. Thankfully, there has been a decline and you see here, even in this slide, poor Zimbabwe, which had a, a very high notification rate, um, has uh, been on the decline. And that is a real testimony to the excellent public health work done in that country, in spite of the fact that maybe the government um, has its own issues um, with supporting um, full public health. Now, the other good news, and I would say this is one of the places where Africa is, be, is to be commended, because when you look at HIV testing in TB patients, um, they, Africa, several African countries have very high testing rate. This, again, is a testimony to many of the community health workers who have mobilized and who have raised awareness about the importance of knowing one's HIV status and then what to do um, beyond that once someone is living positively, so to speak, with HIV. Now, there are, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but I'll just mention it because it's important for you to know that one of the other aspects of care, treatment and care, is getting people on cotrimoxazole preventive treatment or Bactrim, uh, Sulfatrim, as well as antiretrovirals. And um, thanks to your government and your taxpayer dollars, assuming that you're U.S. citizens, a lot of the work that was initiated under President George Bush's administration through the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief actually has improved the access of Africans who are HIV positive to antiretrovirals, and that's excellent news. Let's just talk a little bit about TB in women and children, because I think we're moving along um, time-wise all right. So what do we know about women and children? There has recently been, from the Obama administration, an increased emphasis on the health of women and children, um, also the female child. 
And within the TB world, when we disaggregate the smear positive TB from the smear negative TB, smear positive meaning they have pulmonary TB, they can cough up something, you, you know, get the sample, you prepare it and stain it, you can see the TB bacilli on the slide. That's smear positive. Smear negative, it could be TB within the lungs, but in a very low burden, or they have extra pulmonary TB, in which case you wouldn't be getting a sputum sample. They may have TB meningitis or TB of the bones or TB of the ovaries or the gastrointestinal tract, et cetera. But what we notice is that there are more um, extra pulmonary TB cases within women. About a little over a third of all the cases notified globally are among women. And that what you see in the lower graph is that um, about half of those females um, in Africa, actually, and the eastern Mediterranean are um, uh, extrapulmonary cases, which really makes detection harder. It's easier, of course, if you've got a nice sputum, a juicy sputum sample, and the person is coughing and feverish and losing weight, has the fiery consumption that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy. But it's not always quite so straightforward. Now, in terms of children, we see an even greater difference in sputum smear positive and sputum smear negative. So extrapulmonary TB um, tends to be much more, uh, children tend to have more extrapulmonary TB. And I'll just make a comment about this. There is a vaccine for TB. It's called BCG. It's been around for century, well, over a century um, and it has many strains. The idea is that it prevents extrapulmonary TB. So a child can get the BCG vaccine, but can still get a TB of the lungs, can get pulmonary TB. <coughs> anyway, that being said, I think what we see here is that, and what has been a concern among pediatricians like myself and other people working in the public health aspect of TB, is that there's probably a lot of misdiagnosis of TB in children. And a child has a cough, or they've got some lymphadenopathy, and somebody says, oh, it must be TB. Um, it's not an easy diagnosis to make, but um, I think we're, it behooves us to make a correct diagnosis. The problem with misdiagnosis, calling TB what is not TB, is obligating a child to several months of treatment and drugs that could have side effects. Um, and the problem with underdiagnosing it is obvious. The kid continues to have TB and gets sicker and sicker. And part of the problem really lies at the community level, where pediatricians may be seeing this but not working in conjunction with their public health departments and their local health authorities. There are some countries that are quite interested in um, closing that gap. Bangladesh is one of them. Um, DR Congo is another. And, and there are others, but within my particular uh, world, those are ones that quickly come to mind. Um, and India has also done some excellent work in that. Anyway, the bottom line on, again, the global perspective TB uh, in terms of women and children is that it's thought that there's probably about three plus million new cases uh, among women just in this past year. And it, they still estimated that about 10% of cases are among children. Now, I will, I will want to say that there are some countries where that is an exception. In Afghanistan, for example, the National TB Program reports that almost 70% of all their cases are in women. And there have, I've heard some reports in Kabul, um, where I also do some work, 
that um, TB of the reproductive health tract is a major concern among those women, women who want to have families and yet are infertile because the TB, the filli, have settled within their reproductive tract. So that's a particular interest if you want to put the reproductive health interest with a, an infectious disease one. There are estimated over 300,000 deaths among HIV-negative women and a half a million deaths among women, um, including those with HIV-associated TB. So we have about 10 minutes now just to sort of turn the focus from the presentation about TB to about you and your brains. And as a child neurologist, I'm going to be sure you are using your brains. So the question is, now what? So what are your next steps, given this information? So if I could help guide you, not give you the answers, but help you start thinking a little more systematically, like how can I get involved in TB prevention and control? Maybe one of the questions would be, well, you know, where will I work? Do I want to work in the United States where we still have TB? Um, most of that TB, I think about 68% of that is among the foreign-born, so the immigrant, the sojourner within your country may be the person with TB. Or you could work globally, internationally, um, depending on your, you know, many factors. Or maybe you want to take an urban focus. Um, many of the inner city populations suffer with this because of crowding and poverty and malnutrition, et cetera, even here in the U.S. Or you may want to work in rural populations that have difficulty with access to good primary health care. And that can be domestically or abroad. And then secondly, what theme should I be involved in? Do I want to work on the prevention side? Do I want to work on detection and treatment? Am I really interested in HIV because there's something kind of sexy about these two diseases getting together? Um, do I want to work on a bigger challenge like drug-resistant TB? Or is my skill really that of raising awareness, motivating people? Do I have communication skills? I'm not a medical person. You know, I'm not a lab scientist, um, but I still want to raise awareness about it. So maybe working in communications and advocacy. The other question is, what level of care do you want to work at? You can work centrally. You can work, you know, like with ministries of health and governments and donor agencies. Um, or you can be in a very decentralized role, let's say, in a non-governmental organization, um, a co in community-based care, for example. And then who do you want to focus on? You know, do you want to work with the marginalized? The marginalized consists of the poor, the prisoner, um, the children, the outcasts uh, in various communities uh, among many marginalized groups? Do you want to focus on the issues in women or the issues in children um, and many other things that you could uh, consider there? And then another question is, what kind of setting do you want to work in? Do you want to work in public health? Um, or do you want to be a medical person in that area? Do you really love academics and ivory tower and just can't wait to get your latest journal of the Lancet or American Medical Association or the Journal of Nursing Care, et cetera, or the pharmacy world? Um, or do you want to work with an international organization or the UN? And I mentioned before non-governmental organizations, also known as NGOs, or government, or a donor agency. I happen to work with a donor agency, the U.S. Agency for International Development. So we have the opportunity to influence where funds are spent and how they are spent. Um, 
but there are also great advantages at working at a non-governmental level where sometimes the flexibility and tremendous impact with relatively low resources is, uh, is quite satisfying. And then lastly, you know, how can I be innovative in such an old field? You know, can we teach an old dog like TB new tricks? Can we do something innovative in this field? Well, as you know, there's still a lot of room to, to go and grow, lots of cases that haven't been detected. Do you want to work in a laboratory setting? Do you want to sort of help answer operational research questions, like what is really the best way of getting messages to to communities, or how do you keep a person on a drug when the drug has side effects and they live up in the snowy mountains of the Hindu Kush, you know, or they're deep down in the tropical forests of, you know, wherever? Um, or do, would you like to work on new drugs? And in uh, the session that I'll do on Saturday morning, I want to reveal some astonishing things about the drug world and what has and hasn't been done in that area. So if I can capture you for a second time on Saturday morning, I would love for you to come and hear more about the drugs and vaccine issue. We'll also talk a little bit about a new diagnostic that's out there. And um, so I'm just going to put that out there as a teaser. So maybe you'll, you'll come and, and hear some more. Another area you might want to work is mobile health technologies. I, I love when people start getting on the cutting edge and they use 21st century things. You know, there are, there are ways of using cell phones. There are some countries where that's the only way people communicate is by cell phone. You can do text messaging to TB patients, to community health workers. I remember one time... Uh, in Afghanistan visiting an outlying um, laboratory, a little rural lab, and I said, and I looked at their registers, and I said, oh, I noticed that you're doing a good job, but there are some patients who look like they aren't coming back for their sputum conversion check, and what do you do in that case? And in my mind, I just sort of sat back, and I waited for him to tell me that somebody went out on a donkey, and they returned, you know, a week later, having maybe notified a patient who had then migrated, or, you know, a nomad, something. And he said, no, I just pick up my cell phone, I call the community health worker, and, you know, they know exactly where so-and-so lives, and they make sure that they come in. And I, I also want to put in a strong word of commendation for the nurses and community health workers in these countries. They're really the backbone. I mean, I'm a physician, and I have a role to play, but the people who are out there really doing the work are community health workers, nurses, and oftentimes volunteers in that. So they're quite dedicated. All right, well, um, where do we go for more information since we aren't able to cover everything here? I would first encourage you to go to the Stop TV website, which is www.stoptv.org. Um, it's based out of Geneva, Switzerland, and I know you can't stand on your head, but if you look at the, the sign here that says stop on it, if you turn it upside down, it spells dots. So it's kind of an interesting thing that they did there. Other resources, I've listed a number of key documents and websites here for you to go and uh, get more information. I'll just... Again, encourage you, the World Health Organization has a number of publications, and I brought a whole suitcase of things that I have that I've loaded on you, so to speak, and I've placed them over on those two little stands there. So feel free to get a document. Please go after them. <laughs> they're, they're, I don't want to take them home. 
I would also encourage you to look at your own government's website, the U.S. Agency for International Development, um, our TV webpage, and the International Union Against TB and Lung Disease, also known as the Union. They have uh, excellent training courses in various parts of the world. They just recently had one in Hanoi in Vietnam. They also have a Spanish-speaking one down in Central America. Um, they have some French uh, courses in, I think, Côte d'Ivoire and uh, Bédin. And then they also have one down in Tanzania. And there are, there, anyway, it's a great place to get some in-depth training with the real TB experts. Your Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in the United States also has information uh, more focused on domestic TB, but it's helpful to know your backyard before you go beyond your backyard. And then if you're interested in sort of global fund and money kinds of issues, how many millions of dollars country X is getting for uh, TB, you can check on the global fund. And um, I just want to close in acknowledging a number of people who actually worked on the data in the slides, the graphs and bar charts and line charts that I showed you. There is a core report team based in, at the World Health Organization in Geneva, as well as their regional offices. Uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development also supported that work, and then many people around the world in other countries who are not named here but who are valuable um, heroes with, within that world. So let me close here with a thank you, and we'll open it up to some other questions for the next few minutes. And I'll, for the sake of the recording, I'll try to repeat your question and provide a, a succinct answer. Yes, sir. Are you aware of any promising prospects for more effective drug therapy that are currently being investigated for the multi-drug resistant forms? Right. The question was, am I aware of any other sort of initiatives for new drug development, especially for multi-drug resistant TB? I am. And um, there are some things in the pipeline. I'll talk more about that on Saturday morning, and we can also talk offline about it. Certainly drug development is a long process, the research and development and so on. I remember when I started at uh, USAID about 11 years ago, they were starting to talk about uh, some new drugs that are now just entering into clinical trials almost a decade later. But there are some drugs that are coming up. In addition to new drugs, there are also new regimens. And um, traditionally, the, the treatment for TB has been four drugs for two months and then two drugs for four months. That's a very easy way to remember. Um, I did a rap song a few years ago, and it was four drugs for two months then two drugs for four months. <laughs> so it's an easy way to remember it. But that regimen is starting to change, and that's good news. Shorter regimens are likely to mean better treatment adherence and treatment completion and cure, so that's what we're after. But we'll talk, we can talk a little bit more about that. Thank you for that question. Other questions here? Yes, Elliot. TB uh, control is sometimes separated out as it's sort of separated from general medical care. Um, do you have a view about whether that's a better way to go about it in third world countries or to make TB yeah, that's a good question. I'll just repeat it. Sometimes TB control and prevention is, a, I'll paraphrase this, is a vertical program that is seen, you know, existing in its own right. In other settings, it's, it can be more integrated. And the question is, what works better? 
you know, we're still posing that question and trying to answer it. There has been a push for integration. I know, for example, in Afghanistan, with the basic package of health services, TB control and prevention is within that. But you sometimes will find that people are so keen on a delivery system and they have their hands full with just the recording and reporting and the drug uh, distributions and keeping up with the labs and so on that it's hard to place themselves in such an integrated package. However, ultimately, and we'll talk a little bit about this on Saturday morning, another teaser, is that people rarely come to a health center saying, I have TB. I have, a, you know, a boatload of mycobacteria in my right upper, you know, lung field. It doesn't happen that way. They come in with more general sorts of things, and they expect you to make the diagnosis. In that instance, having TB control and prevention at a primary health care level where your non-TB people are aware of the community burden and know what to do. They don't maybe have to make the whole diagnosis and treatment and follow-up, but their, you know, their antennae are up. This could be TB, and therefore, if that's embedded in a primary health care system, there's more likely to have earlier case detection. I mean, why should somebody with a disease that's been around for so long, for which there is a treatment, if they're drug-sensitive and even drug-resistant, why should that person go through weeks and months of life suffering, having the mycobacteria eat at some body tissue? Um, so earlier detection is important for the individual's sake. Earlier detection is important also for a community's sake, the health of the public, the public health. So I would favor it being integrated with, or some aspect of it being integrated within primary health care services. Um, and you'll find people on either side of that equation in terms, sometimes when they are really looking to focus, understandably, they really want to be, as they say, pretty siloed and verticalized in their program. It, it depends on the training, the age, the gender, a whole, you know, the support of the national TV program, the funding levels. Um, to really, it's not a sort of one-size-fits-all equation. And sometimes you'll have phases of that that are integrated and others that are, are separate. At some point, the TB program has to do its job. They have to have um, community health workers who are, I won't say solely dedicated to follow-up, but, you know, who have some of their time that can be dedicated to uh, identifying possible TB cases and then getting them into a, a, um, a treatment pro, a detection, a case confirmation program, and a, a treatment program. And I'm glad to talk with you more about that, too. Yes, sir. Yes, do patients with non-pulmonary TB, are they um, a source of transmission of the disease? That's a very good question. Do people who have non-pulmonary disease transmit TB? And again, we'll talk a little bit about that on Saturday morning. Um, but generally, no, because how is TB transmitted? By coughing. People cough, and those little droplets are out there in the air, and if you happen to go by, you know, you may sort of take in some of those. In fact, you are looking at a case of infected, a person who has infection. I have a positive skin test, although I don't have an active case of TB, but like the other 2 billion people in the world, um, I have a positive skin test because I've worked with TB patients. So... It's not an uncommon thing, but that's because I was treating or taking care of somebody who hadn't been uh, diagnosed and placed on treatment. And for those, just a little clarification, if you are 
if you have pulmonary TB and you're placed on treatment, usually you are not infective. Uh, you're not transmitting that after about two, three weeks of treatment, and that's good news. That's a good public health news as well as a good individual health news. I think our time is really coming to a close. I'm glad to answer questions individually. I just want to respect your um, timetable. As I said, I'll be here on Saturday morning for sort of part two of the TB story. I would encourage you to come. And if not, maybe you can listen to the recording. So thanks to those who are recording, and thank you for coming.